Hello and welcome to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Hadjassad and with me as always is my good friend and fellow automotive journalist, Benjamin Hunting. Say hi to the people, Ben. Greetings, human listeners who haven't been beaten down by the world. Greetings to everyone, beaten down or not. Now, in case this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, Ben and I are a pair of automotive journalists. And you know what? Ben is a pretty accomplished journalist, and he writes for a number of prestigious and special publications. Ben, hit me with a list of some of these publications that you can fi- that we can find your writing on. You know I'm going to cut all of that. Why? It's just too much. But it's fun. Uh, you can find my work at Motor Trend, Automobile Magazine, and Haggerty Classic Car. Very cool. And on my end, you can find my work at autotrader.ca. So this week, Ben, we have some amazing cars to talk about, some really high-end, high technology, and you know what? Just downright unique cars to talk about. And, I think you really and, built it up. I don't think I think you got to the edge of that cliff. <laughs> there was another step, but you were just you were just spent. <laughs> That's true. So I'm going to start us off. You know what? Last week was the LA Auto Show, and I spent my time um, in LA. Actually, a little bit before the show, I joined other jurors from around the world who convene and test drive a bunch of cars and help decide what will be the World Car of the Year. And sounds uh, really fancy. I'm not going to lie. It is. Um, it is pretty interesting, to be honest. It's, it's very cool to meet with jurors from around the world and hear their takes on some of the cars that we either don't get or some of the cars that they don't get. For example, you know, talking to um, journalists from Europe who have never driven the Telluride or the Palisade, and for the first time they're driving these really big vehicles and what their impressions are of it. And you'd think that jurors from uh, other parts of the world where maybe, you know, they don't have as much space as we do in in North America, they might be intimidated or they might find such a large vehicle to be a waste of space. But you know what? They were as impressed with the those vehicles um, as we were, Ben. But I want to talk about some of the new cars that I've driven while I was, uh, or tested while I was over there, particularly the Porsche Taycan. And on the other end of the spectrum, the Hyundai Venue. So I'm going to start. I'm going to start with probably the most, um, you know, the most appealing car to all of our our audience, which is the Taycan. Well, that's, and that's an interesting question. Is it really that appealing? Because yes, it's high performance, mm-hmm. but there's a really big but when it comes well, the, to our audience. I think the but is that it is a pure electric vehicle. Yes, and uh, it's a four door. It's also Porsche's, you know, foray and first step into an all-electric um, powertrain. And some people will call this a, a Porsche model. I mean, sorry, a Tesla Model S competitor. And I think that's fair. Now, the model I drove is the Taycan Turbo. There's one step above that, which is the Turbo S, which is kind of the the flagship model. But the model I had was the Taycan Turbo. It uses a 93 kilowatt hour battery. And has a range of just under 300 miles. So which, this is a this is a, a a car that has no turbo, but is called turbo. That is right, um, and and that is something that people will again probably uh, not get used to with when it comes to the the Taycan nomenclature. I, I don't know how they're going to get used to that. In some ways, it's the Ford Mustang Mach E of the Porsche lineup. Exactly, 100. Um, percent And this. Is, this is an extremely high-performance vehicle. It's got uh, 600 horsepower, 626 pound-feet of torque. It does 0 to 60 in 3 seconds, which is blazing fast. That is insane. And, and having piloted it, I was I didn't know what to expect. 
Uh, and but what I got was was something worth talking about, and that's why we're we're right here on the podcast doing so. I have a question so, about the zero to sixty time. Do you know what tires were on the car? I don't know exactly what tires were on the car. Um, do, do you know if they were like high performance sticky tires, or if they were tires that were more oriented towards improving range? I I don't know. I I would imagine that this was a high perform. These were high performance tires on it. I. Just based on the amount of grip and the feeling of the vehicle, uh, I would say that this is more in line with that. I've been on those kind of low rolling resistance tires before, and you can usually feel and hear those things squeal and scream as you're reaching um, higher performance or, or higher grip levels and, or lower uh, grip levels. Is is the turbo the only trim level of the Taycan? No, so there's the Taycan Turbo S Turbo, and there's a mainstream model called the 4S. Okay, and uh, that's that's my understanding of their of their lineup right now. Um, I, so I, another yeah. follow. Sorry, I have so many questions, but it just of you, keep, you keep, everything you bring up just is, it's like triggering uh, my thought process. You said 4S. Does that mean there are rear wheel drive versions of the Taycan? As far as I understand, no. Okay, so <laughs> so Porsches. So the reason you know, I normally wouldn't belabor this point. But we already have a, a, a car, the Macan. The yep. Macan has a turbo in it. All versions of the Macan have a turbo in it. But they yep. have one model called the Macan S and the Macan Turbo, even though they yep. both have a turbo. So now we have a That's Taycan right. called a tur- Taycan Turbo that has no turbo. Yep. And we also have a 4S that has all-wheel drive, even though they all have all-wheel drive. So even the base S, I guess, I don't know. Has, is there such a thing? Has <laughs> as far as I know, there is no base S version of the car. Okay, so whatever. So we end. Up, anyway, what I'm saying is, it all just feels is, a little. If like nobody word- knows what's going on, is that what you're trying to say? This it, is insane. It feels a little like word salad. <laughs> it is. It is just all of Porsche's um, buzzwords and marketing speak come to a head right now. And they're just jamming as much things to make their car feel as uniquely Porsche as possible. And that's an important thing to talk about because Porsche's never made an electric car before, let alone an electric four-door vehicle. And what is Porsche best known for? Probably their 911 and their sports cars. Not an electric four-door vehicle, right? But they do have a built-in sedan market uh, or sedan customer base, right? Because of the Panamera. And I think that this is the car. I think the Panamera is the step into um, yeah, Taycan world for the, I think the you're right. customers. I think you're 100% right. It, however, I think there's a huge difference in terms of pricing. This turbo st- starts at $150,000. That's a lot of money. That's got to be... I mean, I know that, that you can get yourself into um, a, a pan- Panamera as as little as eighty or $90,000. For an extra 50% of the cost, you're going to be getting into an electric vehicle. Yeah, but there are very expensive Panameras, too. I mean, there's so many yeah, models. There, there's definitely $150,000 pan, uh, Panameras as well. Yeah. So what the probably the most important question to ask with the vehicle is, does it feel like a Porsche? Does it feel like a sports car? And the answer is yes with a but or no with an and. You know what I mean? There, There's no way that a car that weighs as much as this car will feel as sporty as Porsche's most important nameplates, namely the, the 911 or the, the Cayman. This is a car that weighs over 5,000 pounds. In fact, over 5,100 pounds. That's very, very heavy. That's <laughs> like extremely heavy. That's like Jeep Grand Cherokee level. <laughs> it's insane, right? That it, there's no way you can you can feel 
um, that this will be a sporty vehicle. And and a lot of people say that that extra weight lends itself to feeling a little bit more robust, substantial, maybe even a little bit more planted. But I don't when, know. I, I agree. I don't 100% agree with that mindset. Um, but Porsche does know how to manage their weight in their in, in their vehicles. They know how to make the car um, sort of suspension-wise feel at ease on the road with that much weight. And I'll say that this car definitely had the grip to to accommodate how just how heavy it was and how powerful it is. And truly, it is incredibly fast. I, I was so impressed with just how, um, you know, we, we've talked about electric vehicles and how they respond to to uh, your throttle inputs. And this is 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 that times 100. It really does just, if you feel, if you think about going a little bit faster, you nudge that accelerator just a little bit and the car responds so quickly. This, believe it or not, has a two-speed two transmission, which is also, I think, somewhat unique for uh, the electric car market. Um, so the first gear gets the car going um, and really prioritizes acceleration, while the second gear is all about that long gear ratio uh, and ensures the, the, the mileage that you need. I took a look at the Panamera pricing. Um, mm-hmm. So the base model is 87000 but then the next model is 129000 Yeah. And then turbo is one fifty three. Um, and if you want to have like a the, the, the Taycan starts at 103,000 for the, for the base. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, that is exactly the same MSRP as the e-hybrid Panamera. Interesting. Like, uh, so, and I mean exactly $103,800. Do you think that Porsche will, will, will offer these two vehicles sort of like, well, here's the one if you have range anxiety and this is the one, um, if you're all in on the electric, I don't know. It's electric. an interesting question. Um, I'm. I don't. Also, don't know. Uh, speed wise, the the base model Taycan is it, it, Taycan. I, I don't know how to say it. Is it's a little bit faster. <laughs> it's, it's like a half second faster to sixty. Yeah, I'm Compar- you, compared to the part. to the hybrid version of the Panamera. So that's another thing I think too. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's kind of kind of interesting that the, the pricing. So uh, there's definitely, I would think that with that pricing, there's definitely a conversation with salespeople where they're like, if someone comes in looking at an e hybrid, also yeah. talk about the the EV that we have. Right. So the other things I want to talk about with this vehicle is um, the braking was a little unnatural, or maybe un it takes some getting used to. This is something that I think a lot of electric vehicles and hybrids we've talked about in the past when it comes to regenerative braking. Sometimes they can they can have this really nice transition between regenerative uh, regen brakes and conventional braking, and other times they don't. And sometimes it feels like the Taycan was just content to just coast whenever you let off the throttle, and other times it could just start the regen functions. I wasn't quite um, I couldn't quite anticipate how it was going to react every single time I let it, off. The it didn't throttle. seem to be related to like how you were driving or where you were driving or like if it was a hill or something. It was kind of random. I wasn't sure. Like, I mean, I did only have a very brief um, experience with the car, and I did switch through a bunch, a bunch of different drive modes uh, through the process. So I think that has a lot to do with it. Yeah, probably. But yeah. I, I just felt like there were there were times when the brakes felt really touchy, and there was times when the brakes um, just felt a little bit more normal. The other issue I had with the car was specifically the interior. I really, really hope that Porsche takes this criticism to heart. I'm not sure people will really be into the interior of this car because it's all done up with these touchscreens. Um, in the same way that we've complained about other vehicles not having volume knobs, for example, or not having HVAC control knobs, this car does not have any of that. And particularly when you've got a car that's as 
um, stiffly sprung as some Porsches tend to be, or when you put this car in sport mode, trying to change volume or or climate controls by sliding your fingers on a screen will not be done easily. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and and also, you know, trying to see what's on those screens in bright sunlight or um, just from other angles, I'm, I'm assuming that can't be easy either. And, and and you don't have any feedback, as you were saying, when you're trying to do something, you don't necessarily have the there, same level There of is feedback. a little bit of that, that like, they, they put those tactile, haptic touches that kind of like you're using your phone, but it's just not good enough to me. You know what I mean? The other thing is the, the control layout was very, very... Uh, it took again something that was different, maybe for the sake of being different. The gear stick is a tiny little nub sticking out of the dashboard behind the steering wheel. Wow. It was it's very weird looking, and I couldn't find it when you first get into the car because well, the steering wheel is right in the way, and you have to find this little this little. It, it's a tiny. It looks like the size of a of a an old candy bar cell phone, you know, like my old Sony Ericsson W8. And, and there's no need for that, right? Like it could be anywhere. It could, it be, could be anything. Anywhere. And then the on-off button is on the left hand of the of the steering wheel, again, behind the steering wheel. You know how Porsche likes to put their, their ignition on the left side of yes, the Yes, because Le Mans. Yes, but this is a big button, and it's again hidden back there. Additionally, on the gauge cluster, on the upper edges of it, are some of the controls regarding the suspension settings and the traction control settings. Again, I didn't find these to be the most intuitive or smart um, use of that space. I, I, I'm really disappointed. I thought Porsche could do something that Tesla wasn't, which is to create in a an attractive interior that was also um, easy to get used to and not feel cheap. And I, I just feel like they they tried to go too uh, too much with the gimmicks and the high and the what's the what's the phrase I'm looking for? All of those fancy technology they want to wow their customers with by showing it just how high tech they are when yeah. really all of the high tech is under under the sheet metal and with the battery pack and the and the two gear two gear um uh, powertrain for example it, it does seem strange because like you said why not rely on the thing that sold so many cars for you which is the driving experience you know absolutely now i will admit the interface for the digital gauge cluster is perfect for me. I really love this. And you know what? You, you've heard me, you know, just say how much I love uh, digital gauge clusters. But in particular, what I liked about the Taycan's gauge cluster was it was very minimalist. There was no, you know, for an electric vehicle, there's no need for a tack, for example. And as a result, you get um, really interesting sort of infographics and the way that it displays information to you is really um, helpful. You, so, you know what? You know what I want as an infographic on an electric car's digital dashboard. I want to be able to scroll to a screen where it shows the life of a child in the future <laughs> who's able to grow up and have uh, and have a future because I made a responsible choice about avoiding fossil fuels. And it's mm-hmm. like a little narrative. And every day I get to see like that child like grow into an adult and like have a family and and make the right choices themselves. And just at the end of the ownership. Um, I, I just feel better about myself. I mean, you know, combating climate change can only do so much to prolong a child's life. You know what I mean? Wow. Like the, the kid it's, and its you're and saying it's not worth and it, its family and, and its family will also have to <laughs> will also have to contribute, and his healthcare um, will have to contribute to uh, the, his longevity uh, or his his quality of life. You, you as well. It's not folks. just the climate control Unnamed, or the climate un- change. Unnamed Automotive Podcast host Sammy Hedgesad says, too late to do anything about climate change. 
That's not what I said. It's too late to save the kids. Uh, not too late. It's just one thing that we need to do. Um, I really did like this this uh, minimalist style uh, display. It's a nice little circle. It's got the the speed right in the middle of it, and there's a little uh, line that indicates whether you're you're tipping into the throttle too much or whether the car is starting to regenerate. I found it to be very simple, easy to look at, uh, and not too convoluted, which is a, a, a preference when you're trying to gauge information, for, gleam information from a screen as quickly as possible. I'm looking forward to seeing how the the Taycan influences the rest of the the Porsche lineup. I don't think that this is a one and done product. I think from no, I, I don't think, think so. Either. Will will, le- will leverage the technology and the development of this vehicle into its other cars. No, I think you're totally right. And um, I think it's quite attractive, to be honest. This is something that I was not sure about when I saw it first revealed. It has um, I would I don't know if I would call it a vastly different. Um, design language and some of the other vehicles in the lineup with its it, but I think it does. It does have, you know, a, a unique front end with these, you know, smaller headlights and this kind of interesting daytime running light LED coming off the the edges of the bumper. Uh, it also has the, it has some wild looking brakes and and uh, rotors. It looks like they filled out the the wheel well completely before they stuck the wheels in, which I thought was really interesting. Can you imagine how much it's going to cost to repair or replace those I, brakes? I know. Can you, like, truly imagine? Again, this is a 5,000-pound car. Yeah. And also, <laughs> imagine how much better the range would be if it was a 1,000 pounds lighter. <laughs> exactly! I, I agree with you. I'm very curious to see I mean, how, they're gonna, how they're going to improve. There's room for improvement. I think that's the most important it, thing to It weighs about. more than a Charger Hellcat. It weighs... 500 pounds more than a Charger Hellcat. That's mind-blowing. That is mind-blowing. And that's how much a, uh, a battery pack from Porsche um, weighs. Of course, there's something to talk about with the performance of electric vehicles is when you really push um, batteries and electric motors to their to their limits, they end up getting very hot. And Porsche insists that these vehicles will be, will not have that sort of durability or um, reliability concerns that people might have with Tesla Model S's. Oh, well, that's that's a shot across the bow, I guess. I mean, I, I mean, I, I I think it has a lot to do with cooling, uh, and that's another way they increase weight on these cars. You know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't. It's hard to say when one company just specifically targets another one and says your car sucks and our yeah. car is better. It's like I think everyone is taking that approach these days. Uh, especially when it comes to Tesla. And you know what? We'll talk about Tesla later in the podcast. But from now, I want to talk about the other interesting car that I drove at the World Car of the Year uh, testing, which is the Hyundai Venue, which is a Ooh. small – yes? Well, I'm just saying that's like a, almost a 180-degree switch from what you were just talking about. I was, yeah. I'm assuming that there's no $150,000 venue. I mean maybe. There is no $150,000 <laughs> venue. Um, and, and the venue itself is meant to compete with, uh, what I can imagine to be something like the Nissan kicks or maybe other front wheel drive subcompact vehicles like, um, the Toyota CHR, for example. And I could, I could really see that, um, I could really resonate with the, the comparison to the Nissan kicks because this is a very, it's a very, it's actually a very style forward, um, affordable vehicle. It, looks um like when you see it you're going to you're going to say that's a very unique looking car it's well, kind I, of it's seen... kind of boxy it looks like a i think i mentioned this it looks like a hyundai take on 
like a Jeep Renegade. And I don't know if that's, if mm. people will take that the right way or the wrong way. I, I really think with this vehicle, and I know that podcasting is a, a, a not a visual medium, so yeah. it's hard when we talk about this kind of stuff. But there's definitely some angles where it looks better than others. Um, mm. But I think it has a lot of similarities to vehicles we've seen before from from Hyundai and Kia. I think there's a lot of soul in yeah, the okay. profile of the vehicle. Yeah. And um, if, here's you're not they're not going to like this, but the grill that comes with it it's it's kind of got these little teeth in it. I don't know how yeah. you would say, yeah. and it reminds me of the XG300 or the XG350. Oh, that is not a great comparison. That, I agree with you. That is not a great uh, part of the vehicle to look at. It's it's just got it's it's kind of brash and it's I don't know if it fits with the rest of the vehicle very well. But it's not an unattractive. View. I've yet to see it in person because I'm not on World Car of the Year. Like some people in this podcast, do you um, want to be on World Car of the Year? We can make some calls. I'm sure we can. We can try. We I, can beg or something. That's not what I'm saying at all, Sammy. Um, I will admit there's parts of this car that look really under uh, underthought or underdeveloped. There's a lot of circles and squares in the design of this car, both interior and exterior. Um, you will see a lot of circles and then a lot of squares. Even those wheels that you're talking about, they seem to be wanting to throw square motifs into the wheel wells. Which I think is not um, is it just is mind boggling. It plays tricks on your on your eyes. I also think that there's a decent amount of Volvo XC40 in this vehicle. I don't see that. In fact, I think the XC40 is such a well done design that um, I'm talking about they, in profile. They've done the they've done the proportions really well in the XC40, and I don't think the the venue has that. All right. Uh, under the hood of the venue is a 1.6 liter four cylinder engine that makes 121 horsepower and 113 pound feet of torque. It's paired to a CVT in automatic form, and apparently you'll be able to get it with a six-speed manual, which is pretty impressive. Yeah. Um, wasn't it's? I mean, it's not the most exciting car, and that's really important to talk about because when we discuss the kicks, we talk about a vehicle that's really engaging, really feels um, lightweight and enjoyable to drive, and I didn't get the same feeling out of the venue, and I think that I drove the CVT model, and I think that has a lot to do with it. And I'm curious to see, you know, try to spend more time with the vehicle and try to understand whether or not this is something that will that will showcase itself in other in other drive routes or other living situations. But the things to discuss about it, it is fairly spacious headroom wise. It's um, it was pretty good to drive. It wasn't super fast. That was the most important thing I need to talk about. And I think that this will be a little bit more expensive than the the kicks so the model i drove was a fully loaded model and i think it came to around twenty three thousand us okay which isn't which isn't as affordable as you'd expect a car like this to be right yeah you're starting to brush up against um well Bonus, at that right yeah and uh, and and also you're looking at the honda fit um yeah. as a hatchback and the the cr not the crv but the hrv which is available um, with all-wheel drive but i think also you can get a cx5 starting around there for sure. I mean, so, there's a lot of cars. That's a that's a price point that is. Um, you're a class above. Like you can you yeah. could make that stretch. But Hyundai took the the lessons they learned from the Kona into the venue, and so there's a lot of personalization. There's a lot of color. There's a little bit of vibrancy in the interior of the vehicle to make it feel not as cheap of a car as it could be, or I guess it's supposed to be. So this is a. I don't know. I'm. I was looking forward to driving it because I was impressed with the kicks. Because it was a cheap car that didn't always feel like a penalty box to drive. Yeah. 
And I'm not sure that Hyundai has reached that level yet, but they have obviously improved the the living experience of the vehicle, which is it feels more special to be in uh, and have all the technology to 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 pair with. So, I mean, our model has uh, Android Auto and Apple CarPlay. I think it was offered with um, navigation systems, for example. And, you know, it's these things are sort of expected nowadays in, in all of these, uh, even the most affordable cars. Our, this car also had all of the, the safety features, so like lane keep assist, um, forward collision warning, blind spot mo- uh, monitoring, um, and and I'm not sure it had uh, adaptive cruise control though. That was the only thing. So so those are those are the yeah. I I mean my impressions are lukewarm. I don't know if this is the the affordable car that we were all waiting for. If we were waiting for an affordable car. There are so many other options out there when it comes to cars in the twenty-two-ish thousand-dollar range, and the venue is is one if you if you really like that upright, uh, boxy, upright design. Sorry, upright driving feel and boxy design. So Ben, I think that's all I wanted. I mean, there were some other cars that I drove that were pretty um, important. I drove the new Mazda CX-30, but Mazda says I can't talk about it until December. So I'm going to honor them, uh, for that. And yet you brought it up. Yeah. Why not? I, I didn't travel anywhere exotic, but I, I did drive something. That's Um, good. And I have something. Thank goodness. Now we have something to talk about. I'm going (laughs) to, I'm going to keep it a little, I'm going to keep it brief, uh, because it's a vehicle that I, I don't know if we've talked about recently on the podcast, but the Acura MDX, and okay. um, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this vehicle this week was because we've recently talked about the Hyundai Palisade and the um, Kia uh, Telluride, yeah. both of which are not – they're not direct competitors to the MDX because the MDX is supposed to be a luxury vehicle. But in reality, they are both way better uh, in terms of overall package, features, design, and drivability than the MDX is. And that to me is is shocking. Um, I really like the sport hybrid version of the MDX because it's fast, mm-hmm. it's quick, it's kind of fun. I drove the regular version of the vehicle, and every other version that's not a hybrid has a V6. I think it has something like two hundred or three hundred horsepower, something something along those lines. Um, and it's 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 a three and a half liter V6. It comes with a nine speed transmission, two hundred ninety horsepower. Sorry, and uh, it's it's perfectly fine. I mean, it's a little bit touchy sometimes but there's nothing wrong with the driving experience and in fact i was really really impressed with the all-wheel drive system because we got hit with a fairly deep snowstorm the day i picked the vehicle up here in montreal and it has their super handling all-wheel drive which always sounds like it comes right out of a video game (laughs) every time i say it but it worked really well i couldn't get it stuck i was driving in and out of snowbanks it did not even spin um it was super impressive it, it, I don't know if if uh, SI all wheel drive is something they want to maybe rename it to. Um, that one, that's a free one for you, Acura. But here's something else that's they're, they're probably not going to be as pleased with. The interior of the vehicle is absolutely without any type of detail or interesting aspect. I, would you agree, Sammy? I would agree, and I would say that this is a car that, when it came out in I think 2014 in this current generation, was somewhat impressive and was easy to like, but. A lot of time has passed since 2014, and the car now feels dated uh, and looks dated, right? It, yeah, the interior, it's just dark plastic, whether it's gray or black, 
there's a thin line of wood-like trim on the dash and on the doors, but it's really not enough to brighten things up. And all of the, the switch gear feels very Honda. It feels very – it doesn't feel premium. Uh, even the seats don't really feel that premium. It, 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 you're paying – you can pay as much as $60,000 for a top-end yeah. version of the MDX, and I think it starts at around forty. I mean and, I wouldn't pay that much. No, really there's, there's no – it does not feel like a luxury car. It really doesn't, um, and that's that's shocking to me. Uh, and, and whereas the the Telluride and and even more so the Palisade had outstanding interiors, yeah, where with the, details uh, with so many details that yes. made you go, oh yeah, they've really thought about how you're going to use it and touch this. And- that's it. They they really thought about it. And with the with the Acura, you have their strange dual uh, infotainment system with a screen on the top, a screen on the bottom. Yeah. It's it's not great. It's kind of clunky to use. It's not as bad as some of its rivals, but it, it's just there's nothing about the ve- what I got. In, if you got in the vehicle and didn't see any badges, you would not think it was an Acura. You would not think it was premium or luxury. You would think you were in a Honda or a Toyota. There's not there's nothing to elevate it above its peers, and it's priced like it should be elevated. And and I'm sorry, as good as that all wheel drive system is, it's just not enough. So there is a new version of the uh, MDX for 2020, which is called the uh, PMC edition, which is in relation to the to the the manufacturing center. Yeah, well, the one I drove was a 2020 model, and it, but it wasn't this PMC edition. No, one. you mean the super expensive assembled by hand at the NSX. Uh, yeah, I was line? about to suggest that, right? And this is a car with this gorgeous red paint finish, and it's got I think carbon fiber trim on the inside. But is that enough to – first of all, it's super expensive, <laughs> it's I believe. It's super expensive. I need to find the pricing on this because um, – and is that enough to, to suggest that this is what people are looking for? I can't find pricing on this. On this there's, there's nothing uh, about the MDX that I would recommend anyone look into it for any reason. I'm sorry. That sounds harsh. But this is a product that has been outcompeted. It's not that there's anything bad about this vehicle. It runs and drives fine. But you get inside and there's nothing special about it to um, commend its price point. And if it was $20,000 less and it wasn't a luxury vehicle, it would be a lot easier to like it. I think it actually looks – I think it looks a, a pretty good on the outside too. I mean it's not yeah. ter- It's not terrible. Uh, now that they've gotten rid of that beak, that uh, shield or whatever you want to call it, the, the MDX looks pretty, pretty attractive. So – and or if you get the sport hybrid, you do get a decent amount of performance. But again, you're going to be spending a lot of money to do that and you still get a fairly milk toast interior. And if I want a milk toast interior, why not just buy a Pilot for a lot less money or spend $10,000 less and get the best Palisade and have a much better vehicle all around? Anyway – I realize I'm really beating up on the MDX, but it's just shocking to me because I know Acura could do better. Well, I think that's I think the PMC version of this car is sort of the swan song of this generation. I'm I wouldn't be surprised if we saw uh, hints at a next generation model throughout 2020. Well, this is their best selling vehicle too. I mean, MDX leads the way for Acura, so yeah, I, this is this I, is where the effort should be going. Okay, um, and, and you know what? It's not that. You know, we've been in an RDX before, and the RDX has pretty decent details inside of it, too. Yeah, it's okay. It was like a bit of a button festival in there. but It's a lot less expensive, too. <laughs> yes. So that was that was what you drove, though. Um, yes. You also wanted to talk about something else. You went and you saw this new movie that's uh, that just hit theaters, the Ferrari versus Ford, or Ford versus Ferrari. I'm sorry. I don't know the, the actual name of the movie. Yeah, I think that's what it's <laughs> called. But I, I, the reason I wanted to bring that up is because um, uh, we had another book sent to us by um, the good folks at Motorbooks. Hold on. Are you telling me you're not doing a movie review? I tricked you, Sammy. Uh, I actually – I know you don't read. Um, <laughs> so I know I had to get it in there sideways. <laughs> and that's what I did. 
So um, this book by Preston Lerner, it's mm-hmm. called Ford GT, How Ford Silenced the Critics, Humbled Ferrari, and Conquered Le Mans. And it's really interesting. I, I've had this book for about a month, and I waited till I saw the movie because I wanted to, you know, see Hollywood's interpretation of what happened and then get the actual scoop right from uh, multiple historic sources that are quoted in this book. And if, if you have seen the movie, you're aware that, you know, a lot of stuff was dramatized. It's not exactly accurate um, in terms of the evolution of the car, the people involved, their personalities, or the actual... <laughs> events at Lama. Mm-hmm. this book fills in all of the details that were skimmed over in the film and the amount of detail is incredible there's so much in here not just about the car uh but about the the climate at ford that created the car the people who were involved before the gt40 actually started racing so the people who were building the the prototype versions of the car who were involved initially in the project and then were no longer involved uh, after a few years and was passed on to shelby and some other engineers um the way the executives at ford viewed the program and why they decided to keep it going, why they decided to finally stop it. And then the interesting thing is, even though Ford got out of officially racing the 24-hour race, a bunch of privateers, there are, I think, something, there's around 150, give or take, versions of the GT40 that were ever built. And a lot of those were sold to privateer racers who went out and kept winning with them. That's years, wild. Okay. Yeah, and, and it's years after Ford had decided the car was no longer competitive. So uh, that's an interesting chapter that's never really talked about in the movie either. So um, I'm not going to so talk I'm not going to talk. The question I much. have, though, are, is having watched the movie and having read the book, would you prefer one experience over the other? Or should you should people have both? They're two entirely different experiences. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying you have to have both. If you want to be entertained, the the movie is marginally entertaining. I found it very average. Christian Bale had a great performance as Ken Miles, a driver and engineer. Um, but the the book is it's just a different experience. It's it's beautiful photographs inside of it. A lot, a lot, a lot of in depth information. I mean, if you had any question about the GT40. This book's going to answer it. And it also has a uh, a new chapter about the existing GT program for the Ford GT um, that they brought out to race in the current uh, World Endurance, et cetera, et cetera. Cool. So that, that's interesting too. Uh, and, you know, it's it's not easy to – this. the problem with this type of um, – this era of, of racing, there were so many different personalities involved. Some of them were, I guess you could say, brash or um, irascible or people didn't necessarily get along with each other. So there have been many different books out there that have kind of presented one point of view. And I think this book is very even-handed in terms of how it portrays the characters involved. Uh, that is – you know what? I'm looking forward to to reading that. I've always actually had this story on my, um, on my wish list, on my Amazon wish list. Something to get a little bit better acquainted to. Um, the subject of Ferrari versus Ford or Ford versus Ferrari and seeing how they really took it to Ferrari. I'm, I'm always eager. I also like just getting as much information as I can. The the other thing that I found funny about the entire movie and this book, I mean, not this book because this book is a historical document, but the, the actual story of the film is that everyone's like, Oh, you know what? Ferrari was so, if you're not familiar, essentially Ford tried to buy Ferrari because for various reasons, they wanted to get involved in racing. That was one of them. And Ferrari was somewhat financially vulnerable at the time. 
And the deal fell apart, and Ford, Henry Ford II, who I believe was Edsel Ford's son, who was running the company at the time, he felt personally insulted by some of the things that had been said during the negotiations, and also by being rejected by Ferrari. So they're like, you know what, we're going to go build our own race car, and we're going to beat them on the track. That was part of it. I mean, Ford did want to go racing, but there was this like kind of like, oh, you know what, we're going to show them. And we don't and, need you, yeah. Yeah, and that's that's presented in the film as like kind of you're gonna you're supposed to get behind that idea like yeah you know what you go get him but then you think about the fact that you're cheering for a giant multi-billion dollar multinational company yeah. that one of was, the biggest companies <laughs> of the time, right? that was yeah that was felt jilted by a tiny tiny company Italian, in italy yeah run by one dude <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then and it's we, like we're like are we cheering for the underdogs here no it's it's a bully story it's like they spent <laughs> millions and millions of dollars that ferrari did not have <laughs> <laughs> to like beat they basically tried to buy Lamar. And in the in the movie, they try to backpedal a bit because like characters keep saying, Well, you can't just buy the win. You can't buy the win. It's a whole program. You have to get this and that and everything has to be right. And that's accurate. But yeah. you can also buy the win. <laughs> Which is kind of what they did. Um, I want to transition now, uh, as we've been doing for the la- for the latest episodes, we've got some questions and things to talk about. Um and we've got uh first I want to address a uh, longtime commenter here, Blake Swan, who's been asking about the new Mini uh, Cooper, John Cooper Works Edition GP, which is this high performance high performance version of the Mini Cooper uh, Coupe, which has a fancy carbon fiber wing and a bunch of wide fender flares and stuff like that. And most notably, it has a 300 horsepower engine. Now, Blake wants to know: Is this the same engine that you can find in BMW's uh, M35 motors? Now. You mean the two series? The two series and the X two, okay. I believe, has this has this engine as well. And I have done a lot of research. I've been looking around for it. I cannot find anywhere that explicitly says that is the case. But a part of me says it one hundred percent is the case. One of the, <laughs> one of the reasons I think so is that um, one BMW has a bunch of these engines now that are in this three hundred horsepower range. Um, and we both know that the mini platform as well as the, um, X one and X two platform are shared. And, uh, now that the John Cooper works, uh, GP is not going manual. This is another way that I think that the, the transmissions and the powertrains are related to one another because that's the way you get these M 35 I versions of the X two and, uh, two series. So I would say I would I would bet on it actually that this is a BMW the same BMW engine. So thank you Blake for that question. Uh, ben, why don't you ta- why don't you tackle the uh, the questions from the next? We had a, lo- a bunch of people actually uh, write into us about the Cybertruck. Oh great! Unless you have declared a, a self imposed media blackout over the last week, you have heard about the Cybertruck. So the people wanted to know what we thought. Uh, Cybertruck is, for those who aren't, aren't familiar, even though I'm sure 100% of the listeners are familiar, it is a triangular looking truck that Elon Musk has decided to call a pickup. It's bulletproof for some reason, and it has a lot of power. Um, Sammy, what do you think of this truck? First of all, you were very, um, very generous in your description of the exterior. I'm sorry, the best way to describe this is if... Somebody designed the Halo Warthog for a PlayStation 1 or even like N64 game. It is it is a very low-poly looking sort of car. It yeah. just is... I, I cannot 
figure out that this is a design um, by committee or if this is just what Elon Musk had in mind when he said he wanted a Blade Runner um, style um, styled vehicle. Well, Sid Mead, the guy who designed all the vehicles for Blade Runner, is a fan of the, of the Cybertruck. He has come out and said he likes the look. So, I mean, he's got one fan. Um, and, of course, the Tesla faithful love it because, they, of course, they will. You know, I think this is the kind – I don't think we will see this vehicle in production. I think we'll see something in production at some point three or four years from now that is truck-like. I think this is a attention-grabbing thing that gooses mm-hmm. the stock price and keeps people interested and keeps investors interested, and I think that's a smart move. I also think it looks interesting uh, regardless of whether it's practical or not or if there's any headroom for the people sitting in the second row or if that front end would pass anything resembling European pedestrian safety requirements. Um, it, it, yeah. it definitely, it's eye grabbing and I, I'm okay with that. Uh, at this point, I don't really look at Tesla's product announcements as being real. Yeah. I kind of feel like it's a game that they play and we all play along and then maybe something happens. And I, I don't really care. <laughs> I think know? that's a great way to put it. Uh, I don't know how much of this can potentially be a real, a viable product. Like we saw something without any mirrors or headlights, you know? Um, one of the most interesting things that came from the Cybertruck presentation was this Tesla ATV, this electric ATV that they threw on the back of it as well, which I actually think was the coolest thing I've seen. Yeah, there's uh, nothing like an ATV that can get you totally stuck really, really <laughs> far from civilization. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's like people who say that um, uh, if you put a really big fuel tank on your Jeep, you just you just end up having to walk farther back to the road <laughs> <laughs> like, when you eventually when you eventually get stuck. I also but, imagine you know if they do want to create it in this in this style, um, you know the the format that they presented with limited uh, cares for standards, pedestrian standards or, or safety standards or crash safeties. I wonder if this has to be a certain class of vehicle in order to maintain that. I mean, I know that, for example, I think, you know, what are the HD trucks, the 3000 series HD trucks? They don't have to do the same testing or they don't have to accommodate the same um, standards, I think. That's than... an interesting point. I mean, yeah, you could maybe do that. Uh, it, it, I guess it depends on... I mean, sometimes there's licensing restrictions associated with those types of vehicles too. So that's a that's another that's another question. Mm-hmm. So that's that's my. I mean, I don't I don't believe it. I just I truly don't believe it. Especially the the, um, the starting price of thirty nine nine, which doesn't make any sense to me. No, uh, we, we based still on haven't... how big it is, on based <laughs> on on the potential of it being a two hundred and fifty mile uh, EV, it just sounds nuts. And it's you know it it, it looks. It looks cool in a lot of ways, but I don't know how functional it is. Um, and we've we've also seen Tesla in the past do things like the Model X, where they focus on a specific design aspect of the vehicle, regardless of whether it's the best choice. The Model You're X is, about the, uh, I'm Falcon talking about doors? Falcon doors, which yeah. which not only dump snow inside your vehicle every time you open them in the winter. Not that anyone who lives in California who works at Tesla cares about that. <laughs> But uh, they had a hard time getting those through side impact regulations. It was very hard to make them safe. And there's, there's no reason to have them except that they wanted them. And Cybertruck could be another instance of that. It could be like, you know what? It doesn't matter how it looks. It doesn't matter how hard it's going to be to get through safety. We want it to look like this. And we have enough investor money and we're bullheaded enough to get it through. I have heard and seen some 
aero talk about the vehicle and about how the design is extremely efficient aerodynamically, like okay. maybe even sports car efficient, despite cool. it being so high off the ground. So there are some reasons for its 80s futuristic appearance. That's cool. But I also want to talk about other pickup trucks, EV pickup trucks that are coming out. I went to – at LA, there was a fairly large display for uh, Bollinger who's making this uh, this electric pickup truck that I really should not be giving too much credit to because these are hand-built pickup trucks with that are essentially completely made of like exposed sheet metal. Yeah, there's no interior to them. And the it, it looks absolutely nuts. It just I don't ima- I don't understand how people will want to be in this thing. It looks uh, like a di- it looks like someone just took a bunch of diamond plate and yeah. <laughs> and made a truck. And the thing about Bollinger is you look at Rivian and, and that's the other one I wanted to talk about. And Rivian is just so much better executed. <laughs> it looks gorgeous. It looks high tech. It looks futuristic. It's got and these it's really functional. unique uh, details as well everywhere throughout the car. And I thought uh, the truck. And I think this is some. Then again, the pricing of both of these vehicles um, do not hold a candle to Tesla's potential thirty nine or forty. No, they're very miles. expensive, which was what makes the Bollinger truck so kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah. Like uh, anyway, yeah, I understand completely what you're saying. So I think that's it for this week's podcast. Why don't we uh, just remind listeners where we can find where they can find our last episodes and all the other episodes that we've ever done and how to subscribe to the podcast. Ben, take it away. Well, you can go to unnamedautomotivepodcast.com. That's usually your best bet. We have every podcast episode ever listed there. You can listen to them there or you can subscribe on your favorite podcatcher using one of the uh, on-site buttons or searching on you know Spotify, Google Play Music, iTunes. We are everywhere and we welcome your feedback and we welcome your subscription so uh uh sammy if people wanted to give more specific feedback how would they get in touch with us so if you go to the website you'll see the contact form there you just fill that out you can send any questions you or any ideas that you want us to talk about on the podcast we are always happy to talk about what you want us to talk about it although maybe we haven't been asked any sort of two two personal questions i guess um, no one's interested in your dark, dark past, Sammy. If you have a right. question Thank about you. Sammy's dark, dark past, next episode is the time to ask. It's just before 2020, so Sammy's feeling like it's time to clear the air, new decade, yeah. all, that, all that good stuff. <laughs> of course. And additionally, you can reach out to us on social media. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Sammy underscore ha, like you're laughing. While Ben, he's on the uh, rose-tinted world of Instagram, you can find him at Hunting Benjamin. Additionally, if you don't want to use any of these applications, you can send an old-fashioned email to Benjamin at Benjamin uh, – sorry, Benjamin at BenjaminHunting.com. And uh, next week, I'm going to be talking about the Land Rover Range Rover Evoque, which is a vehicle I drove at the launch back in April. But I had the chance to actually spend a week with it in the freezing cold world of Canada. And uh, it was a very different experience, Sammy. So I'm a- excited to talk about that. I also drove uh, a new Evoke for a short period of time, and I'm, I can't wait to talk to you about my experience and whether or not we had the same experience, because I don't think we did. Um, and I can talk about some of the other vehicles that we t- I tested during the World Car of the Year. Sounds like a good time, and we hope that everyone comes back and listens to next week's episode, and thank you for being here this week. Bye.